So last year from, believe it or not, August until November, we were spending time uh, studying the Old Testament prophet Daniel. And uh, as we did that, so we want to do a, uh, a recap on the book of Daniel. And uh, let's see how we go. What we have is a prologue. The exile in Babylon begins. So if we go to the beginning, uh, the setting is uh, Daniel's people, the Jewish nation, the southern tribe. They're under judgment after literally hundreds of years of warning. And so we read uh, Daniel 1 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord noticed this, wasn't defeated. No, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These uh, Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure in the house of his God. We also read that he took a, uh, the cream of the crop of uh, Jerusalem. And so this was an assimilating empire. They weren't trying to destroy everything. They came back about 20 years later and absolutely wiped everything out. And that was because of repeated rebellion in Jerusalem. But what they were actually trying to do is take into themselves uh, the, the resources, the manpower, the, the capital power uh, of the nations to enrich and strengthen. And they wanted to diversify. So their belief was actually that they should take in the gods as well. They were very similar to the Romans. They did not impose their religion on others. Rather, they welcomed all religions to them. So they went to the temple not to destroy Judaism, but to incorporate some of its ideas and stuff. That's why he didn't waste it. And that's why one of the later incidents was quite so severe, even in Babylonian terms when they began to drink and the party using the stuff from the temple. Um, and so what happens is Daniel and his friends, and we know the story well, end up going into, uh, into the king's service and uh, they sent off to university. And while they're there, they're being treated as absolute royalty. They are being offered the richest of foods. Now, the reason was not they were worried about kosher laws, kosher laws were relevant. It wasn't that the food was sacrificed to idols because all food in Babylon, even, you know, the humble potato or the carrot or whatever, would have been prayed over and dedicated to some god or other. And so it was the opulence of the food and they just could not conscience the injustice of being the haves while so many people will have not. And, uh, and so <clears throat> we find then the, the, the story begins. Then we look at the structure of the book, and we see, for example, in the first six chapters, we have these epic narratives. And so whether it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being delivered from the fire, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar being humbled, whether it's the writing on the wall, whether it's the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar had, etc., and ultimately, Daniel in the lion's den, we find these epic stories. Then the second half of the book, we find Daniel's, we move into the first person as it were. Daniel is now the, talking about 
my dreams, my visions, what I saw. And so we're entering in, and and time-wise, these do not occur after the first six stories. Time-wise, these occur during. So while those stories are playing out, Daniel is having these dreams. But because it's such a significant change of language, the, the way the book has been edited is that you've got the first six. So there's a clear division. However, the division itself then starts being tampered with. Because unlike almost any other book in the Bible, this book is written in two languages. And so chapter 1 and then chapters 8 through 12 are in Hebrew. And then chapters 2 through 7 are in the language of the day, Aramaic. Now, that would have been well known in Babylon, all through Syria, uh, down into Israel. And so, you know, it, Aramaic eventually became the home language of Jesus. It was so pervasive. So Greek was another language that was there. So Hebrew was already not the most common language when Jesus came around. Although he is deeply Jewish, the languages of the time were Aramaic and then later Greek. And so what we call the Hellenist influence came in there, and the kingdoms will uh, coach us in that. So now you've got a, a, you know, what seems like when you're reading in English, a very obvious halfway mark division. But suddenly now you've got an introduction in one language which ties you to the end, so it's, it's bookending these epic narratives. But then there is this one remarkable chapter. I'm live. There we go. Uh, chapter 7 which is the beginning of, as it were, the visions of Daniel, but it's the end of the Aramaic. And so it kind of holds in this one chapter, structurally, you meant to go, I'm at the summit of the, the book. I've been building up to something. Now, once you're on the summit, you're going to, you're going to operate at a new plateau. Uh, it's not like, you know, everything's downhill from here, but you, you need to understand that the book has been working you towards what you're going to see here, and what you see here will help you interpret the entire book. However, it's not as simple as that. Um, <laughs> they really wanted you to apply your mind as you work with it, and so we see the chiastic structure, which is basically a and D, and, and B, and C, for example. In this case, in the Aramaic, epic narratives, uh, which follow our chapters, we find that we have a structure that works like this. There are four kingdoms. There's a dream. Nebuchadnezzar has it, and he sees the statue, and basically it represents four kingdoms that are going to be overthrown by a kingdom of divine origin and power. A statue will be smashed by a small rock, not cut by human hands, but that rock is going to grow, and it will become an eternal kingdom. And then you see the next story. You see um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their faithful opposition to the human kingdom and its truth narrative. Remember? The story was not that they were not allowed to worship their own God. They just had to take Nebuchadnezzar's sense of self and worship what he thought about himself. Remember that? 
It wasn't that they were told you couldn't worship your God. You just had to accept my truth as well. And so they're entering into, and this was a polytheistic or pluralistic world. And the reality is, is we're facing some of the very same challenges today in which people come up with their own sense of self and demand that you bow down and worship what they think about themselves. Then we see two parallel passages, chapter 4 and 5, in which two kings are judged. The first is Nebuchadnezzar himself, and he is judged and then brought to repentance when he lifts his eyes towards heaven. The second is his, well, we're not quite sure of all the relationships, possibly his grandson. Certainly there was another king in between, and there was a whole lot of mess going on. When Nebuchadnezzar died, the kingdom went into chaos for a while. We know this from secular history. But eventually a guy called Belshazzar comes, and actually some of Daniel's first pictures, including chapter 7, come when Belshazzar comes to rule. In other words, Daniel starts to pray all the more earnestly because he sees the political landscape, the national landscape, the empire literally crumbling from the inside because of this immoral uh, pretty much useless uh, emperor king. Belshazzar then loses his kingdom. So the parallel is chapter 4. Then chapter 6 mirrors the faithful opposition. Daniel, we find Daniel's faithful refusal to not pray and to worship a human king. Now the idea that human kings and kingdoms demand your allegiance, your worship, is reaching its full flower in the story. Um, it's, it's, it's so in your face that if anyone bows down to anything else other than you, they must be thrown to the lions. And we see this progression inside the story of human kingdoms, how they ask for more and more and more until it is so patently, you know, tragic and evil that humans would expect from others the kind of allegiance that belongs to God alone. And they create systems and kingdoms that impose that on others. And, and the weird thing is that King Darius is portrayed as actually a pretty decent guy. He's just trapped inside his own kingdom. Even the one who's being prayed to is now being oppressed by the very system. He wishes he could overthrow his own rules of empire in order to save Daniel. You must know you've got a really bad system in place when good people feel powerless to make the change that is so obviously needed. There's lots of irony, and I mean, we've looked at these stories. It isn't time to re-preach them. But yeah, I want to show you the parallel. Remember, four human empires came and went in the form of the dream in the statue. Now we're about to encounter four more empires or kingdoms, and they come in the form of beasts but they will be overthrown by God's kingdom, this time not represented as a rock, 
this time revealed to be one like the Son of Man, or Ben Adam. It's literally, we're returning to, as it were, Genesis and those first moments of creation. We're being pointed to the fact that this kingdom will bring a recreation. And so, chapter 7 is going to help you understand chapter 2, but chapter 2 provides the interpretive lens with which you can approach chapter 7. Chapter 7 is not giving you new information. It's giving you different images, but it's not giving you new theology per se in terms of uh, what chapter 2 was talking about. Remember, in chapter 2, the great God, Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar, has shown the king what it will take place in the future. The dream is true. The interpretation is trustworthy. And so, remember, it came to a hostile witness. Nebuchadnezzar was not thinking that the Lord reigns. He was thinking, I'm king. I reign. My gods are the best gods. However, remember, he, he wouldn't even share his dream, so it's supernaturally revealed to Daniel, which becomes a double witness. It's like now, now the king is forced to take this seriously. And Daniel's interpretation accurately predicts the history of empires for the next several hundred years. And it contains this idea, chapter 2, that Jesus made the center of his message and ministry that God's eternal kingdom will come and in Jesus now has come to the earth. So these are all important ideas. I promise you we will get to chapter 7, but it's, it's so important that we get the building blocks in place again. And, it's, you know, we were, we were in the trenches of the stories, and I don't know about you, but I love them. I'm like in there. And, it, and it's just so important that we kind of step back and get the broad panorama of what's going on. And so what, what is the message uh, of the story? God literally comes to the most powerful and successful person of his day and warns them that what they are building is not going to last. If you build anything in this life outside of God, no matter how impressive, no matter how profitable, no matter how powerful, it simply will not last. Our kingdoms will not last. No human empire, no human dominion. It doesn't mean they're not going to be there. It just means they don't have the final say. Why can't they last? Because there is... an absolute commitment from God to restore His will on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom will come. Now you need to notice God is involved in the affairs of men and yet He gives men real consequence. Remember, we did that whole examination of sovereignty. Even Belshazzar, when he is facing the end is reminded that God is sovereign, and then he is told, repent. Change your ways, be kind to the oppressed, and perhaps you will not see the destruction. 
even now, on your last night, with the enemy at the gate, you have the opportunity to repent. In other words, God's kingdom does not mean that you have no options. And so Jesus came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sovereignty does not mean that you have no choice. Sovereignty means that the kingdom of God will prevail over all the affairs of man, and nothing you or I do or anyone else does will prevent that from happening. So what does this do in terms of the time of Jesus? Well, around the time of Jesus, the book of Daniel, remember, was like, like this absolute bestseller. It, people were so wired for this. Now, of course, there was, you know, there was all different kinds of parties and groups. Um, but, but so many people were, what were they doing? Well, they were counting down the empires, as it were. And they are going, you know, there goes Babylon. There goes Medo-Persia. There goes, um, you know, Greece. Yes, Rome. There goes Rome. We're waiting. But they're interpreting it and understanding the kingdom in ways that Jesus would not uh, validate for them. But this is what made Jesus' proclamation precisely so profound. Jesus tells both his friends and his enemies that this apex, mysterious, heavenly Son of Man. So he's coming on the clouds of heaven, but he is human. He says, that's me. Now, of course, it's, it's masking language as well. But, but we mustn't think that Jesus just chose it to sort of like be slightly modest. And we will, we will go and look at this a little bit more. So I want to reach towards the end, and then we're going to read uh, chapter 7 uh, a little bit as well. So what's happened is Darius sees Daniel pulled out of the lion's den. He's alive, and Darius issues a decree. Now remember, Darius is Quite likely, and this takes quite a bit of reconstruction, we're not going to do, the King Cyrus, who eventually then said, Israel, you can go home and rebuild your temple. So something's going to change in the heart of this ruler. Now, he's no longer a Babylonian ruler. He's a Medo-Persian. It seems like his Mede name was uh, Darius. That was his title for them and that his Persian name was Cyrus. And kings often have uh, many different titles. Now, I know that's one particularly scholarly angle, and there is debate around that, but it makes a lot of sense of the text. And uh, you end up with quite a few po uh, difficulties if that's not the way you read those titles. So where do we read? King Darius, as Daniel was pulled out, of the lion's den, as he realizes there's a God who's much stronger than him. 
King Darius writes to all the nations and the peoples of every language in all the earth. He says, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree in every part of my kingdom that people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Not yet his God, but he has come to see something in Daniel that says, don't mess with this one. And then he says this, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. God, my healer. God, my savior. God, my deliverer. What we just sang earlier, uh, some of the key words written by a Persian king about 2,500 years ago. And it still sounds great today, doesn't it? He rescues, he saves, he performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. And the sign I have seen is that he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lion. Notice that from that one miracle event that he was privileged to see, he realizes there must be many more miracle events that God is doing. He connects the dot. So often we get to see something amazing, an amazing answer to prayer, a breakthrough, a healing, and then we think that's all that God does. He just did that one. No, no, no. You're meant to connect the dots. Thank you, Praveen Gordon. Uh, you're meant to find out this is what it means, this is what it means again and again, and you slowly unpack it all. And so he had seen Daniel rescued from the power of the lions. And look at what he declares before that. He realizes my kingdom will never prevail against this one. My empire is not going, is no match. And my gods, but they aren't like Daniel's God. You see, his gods would have had very specific roles and they would have had serious limitations. And he recognizes this is the God of gods. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is, or and, uh, technically correct, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So now we moving up very steep slopes. And, and this message has been increasing and increasing and increasing. And, and now the song's been sung by these kings themselves. And then we come to the next verse in chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Remember, that was the king who had the party. Everyone got drunk. So this is the difficult time. So now we're jumping in time back into the story. Daniel had a dream. Visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. In my vision at night, I looked, 
So now we switch to the first person. It's going to stay this way for pretty much the whole book. We're still in the Aramaic. And there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. Two things to understand, and there's many more that we could say. The sea represented a world in chaos. And so for the Hebrews, the sea was not a place to go surfing or sailing or whatever. It often represented a place to stay away. But because it represented chaos, the sea had this, was a metaphor in Jewish thought of all of humanity. And, and, and especially humanity in rebellion to God. So humanity doing their own thing, living in chaos, it's contained by the winds. The winds sort of like hold the sea in place. It's interesting, the, the picture of Genesis chapter 1. Now the earth was formless and void, and the, the wind, the ruach, blew over the waters, hovered, incubated over the waters. It's something like he's going back to almost like that primal image, that creation image. But it's interesting, just to follow through the met- the, this particular image, that's why in Revelation, it says, and when I looked, there was no longer any sea. And we all get depressed to live in Cape Town because you think the sea is so nice. He's not saying there's no sea. He's no humanity. There's no humanity. <laughs> Carol's relieved. She goes for swim as often as she can. There's no humanity in rebellion to God. The chaos, the surging, the striving has been put to rest. In fact, what you see is like crystal clear. There's no threat before the presence of the kingdom of God when it comes in all its fullness. And then out of the sea, each different to the others, from the seething humanity emerges great beasts. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off. It was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the mind of a human was given to it. We're going to go into this next week. There's no greater biblical compliment that you can pay to someone than to see their humanity. Humankind, we do something called totemization. We find an image or an animal or an object that we think is amazing. And then we ascribe that to people and we say, there's your power. And so you're like an eagle or you're a lion or you're a bear or you're a wolf or you're a shark rugby player or you're a whatever it is. And, and we assign a totemic value to a beastly image. The interesting thing is when this beast is healed, even though these are the two most 
beautiful, two of the most beautiful and glorious creatures, a lion. Man, we were in uh, the uh, Pilonsberg National Park, and early one morning, like chaos broke out. We were all driving along, and in the distance we saw, with the sun just rising, still the mist coming off his mane, was this massive male. And, and he was just on a walk, and, and he literally brought the world around him, like Aslan, just to a standstill. Everyone just watched in awe, and our ranger knew the trail. And so while everyone was looking over there, he drove away, and we're going, stop, stop, stop. And, and he's like, trust me. And he went and he parked, and we waited about 10 minutes, but we had like position A. After that, it was just mayhem around us, but the other people had to, we were in position A, and this animal, this magnificent, magnificent lion literally passed right underneath our eyes, continued on his way, and he didn't care whether we existed or not. The magnificent creature, an eagle. We're there, we're watching, we see a, a, a pair of, they weren't mating at the time, but they are called a mating pair of eagles, fish eagles. And so there we are, and, and we're just absolutely watching some of the apex creatures. Uh, in nature. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's vision is accorded some of these very high symbolic animals. But the greatest compliment, the most marvelous thing that could happen is that he could stand on his feet and have the mind of a man. And remember the story, he went absolutely bananas and then when he looked to heaven, he raised his eyes to God. God restored him. The greatest compliment the Bible can give you is to say, you are human. That's how much humanity matters to God. We're going to go more there next week. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs in its mouth, which was obviously a previous kill. So even before it was ravaging the known world, it had already conquered several others, uh, several other nations, etc. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. But on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads. It was given authority to rule. And after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. Remember the last in the statue was the... The bottom of the statue was iron and pottery or iron and clay. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever it was. It was different from all the former beasts. It had ten horns. Notice it was different from the former beasts in that it could not even be associated with a known created animal. It was just beast. 
while I was thinking about the horns, there before me came another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. Similar to something of Ezekiel's vision. But Ezekiel had seen a different river. We see here a river of fire is flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And then when you're wondering where you are, you suddenly hear the court was seated and the books were opened. This is judgment day. Judgment is about to be passed. This is the judge. And unlike our advocates and judges who sometimes will go in wearing, you know, their white wig, all powdered. I mean, where did they get that? Even in our judicial system, you know, I, I, I saw a lady advocate wearing a big white wig, and I'm thinking, and it's this whole appeal to this courtroom image all the way back in Daniel chapter 9, whether or not they understand where it came from and how deeply this got. But it's this idea that there is wisdom and time and judgment is going to be passed. I'm not going to go, we're going to come back to this next week. I continue to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain. In other words, this terrible, terrible creature will come to an end. Its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. Now, remember the telescopic effect of prophecy. You're not always sure when these things are happening. That they will happen, you can see. In my vision at night, I looked. And there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, was led into his presence, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. In other words, that which belongs to God alone is now given to him. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. We are at the summit of the book of Daniel. We read in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. The very heart of the prophetic function, building up from ancient times, Jesus was able to say, of the ancients, they saw my day and they rejoiced. They were looking forward 
to something. The reality is that God has come as king in Jesus during the reign of that last empire. Jesus himself would say in Mark chapter 13 and verse 30, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now in that context, he's describing the coming of the kingdom. At his trial, when he told the high priest, when asked, I charge you, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? He said, I am. You will see who? The Son of Man. Sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. And coming on the clouds of heaven. The reality is, there's so much more contained in this. But there is no missing the point. The sharp cutting edge. The summit of the book of Daniel. So we're going to spend some time unpacking this. Remember that when you have the key, then you go to all the unclear bits. But make sure you don't lose the key in the confusion of some of the other mystical things that may have historical or prophetic reference points that we're going to scratch our heads. And sometimes, honestly, in these next few chapters, we're going to say, well, we're not quite sure. But one thing we are sure, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. Was that because he was high priest? No. Paul would write, every eye will see him. There will come a day. And so the reality is, is that God has stepped into history in the person of Jesus to take our seething world of chaos and begin to turn it around into a world of reconciliation, hope, and deliverance, justice, and righteousness, and into this world in which seemingly all powerful rulers are having their way is coming a different kingdom. We said at Christmas time, so often we, we're longing for an incontrovertible, miraculous sign. Can I urge you to take your Bible and just consider the fact that several hundred years before the person of Jesus, this level of detail is being contained, encoded, and prepared for. So that when he comes, and believe there's a lot more detail that will come, when he comes, you're able to see that the God who was doing these amazing things in Daniel's time is the God who steps into history and does even more amazing things through his holy servant Jesus. You know, the reality of it is, is that God cares so deeply for humanity. He cares so deeply about the brokenness and the beastliness of what we build without Him. That He's come to make Himself the cornerstone. 
that instead of building without him, we can build on him. And he's come to make himself the capstone. The prophets mourned that the one who is the chief cornerstone has been neglected. Don't neglect the one who is at the apex. Don't neglect the one you find at the summit. Don't neglect him there. Because believe me, he's the foundation. He's the rock. And so we have this image of the highest heaven and of a rock not made by human hands. He's at the bottom. He's at the top. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the first. He's the last. He's the rock. And he's the king. And he's inviting you to see and believe.